right across the Northwest Passage to the south of Baffin um, and had a, a polar bear attack mid-trip where the bear attacked them in the middle of the night again and sort of started to, to sort of pound on them through the tent. They managed to thankfully scare it off. Um, Eric ended up trying to hit it in the face with a shovel, um, <laughs> which, you know, you carry to, to make a camp with and to dig your toilet. And he said, you know, you probably should have brought out the toilet paper too because it was the scariest thing that had uh, ever happened to him. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Greetings. You're back. I'm back. We're back. Episode 24 of Wintry Mix. My name is Alex Kaufman coming to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester. And we are here with our intern. She's back for another go. We didn't scare you off in the last episode. Caroline Kessler, you're still here? Oh, I am still here. She's back. Hopefully we can keep her around for the whole season. Uh, We shall see. Uh, Today's episode is going to be a chat with Andrew Bresnahan, who is a resident doctor at the Labrador Health Center. Now, where is that? That is way up in the northeastern quadrant of North America, otherwise known as Labrador. Labrador, uh, a very, very wild land with a very, very wild coast and um, a whole heck of a lot of snow. Caroline, give us a little bit more information to get us ready for the interview. Well, sea ice losses due to climate change have led to an increase in polar bear sightings in the northern coastal communities, uh, which can lead to more human interaction and attacks. Uh, Goose Bay is over 1,400 miles north of New York City, which means it would take over 29 hours to drive there, including multiple ferry rides. And the Trans-Labrador Highway was just built in 1992, and if you're renting a car up in Labrador, uh, the rental car agreement will not let you drive on it because of the dangerous road conditions. It's pretty much just one really long dirt road. So they got their first road in 1992? They did, indeed. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear more. We'll be back with Andrew Bresnahan here on Wintry Mix 24. Stay with us. Season two of Wintry Mix is presented by Intopia. Hold on a second. What is Intopia? It's a fair question, Alex. Let's ask the team. Intopia is here to help you sell more and better vacations. Intopia is not a ski resort. Intopia is helping our partners succeed in the ever-changing world of e-commerce. Really good at Mario Kart. Intopia is trusted by ski areas, golf courses, water parks, and more. Intopia is focused on customer service. Let's go ahead and update that price point. And now I'm seeing that product online. Can you confirm you're seeing the same thing on your end? Intopia is... Headquartered in Stowe, Vermont. Where I drink most of my seltzer. International. Named Outside Magazine's 100 Best Places to Work. Intopia is... Dog friendly. Intopia is... Working hard but having fun. Es un grupo de amigos. Intopia is... Always looking for great coders. Designed to be flexible to adapt to ever-changing e-commerce technologies. Intopia is... Going to stop talking now. Visit us at intopia.com. Alex Kaufman, welcoming you back to episode 24. And on the line, we have Dr. Andrew Bresnahan, who is not your average doctor at not your average hospital, located in the place most of us, myself included, have never been. So what's up, Doc? Hi, Alex. Uh, I'm in Goose Bay, Labrador, which is uh, up on the north coast of Canada, the northeastern corner, just south of Greenland and uh, west of Newfoundland. I'm not really a medical professional, so resident, resident doctor, what's, what's the title? Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm a resident doctor, which means I'm, I'm uh, 
a new doctor, a fresh doctor, um, in my first year of practice here in Goose Bay. It's th- it's the main hospital serving this whole region. It's a very rural, remote corner of the corner of Canada. Most of the communities we serve are fly-in only, so people get in via hospital plane. So whenever there's a medical emergency on the coast, um, we dispatch flights or search and rescue. We're definitely on the smaller side in terms of uh, hospitals, but um, it gets the job done. And you were you were born and raised. Um, in Labrador, correct? Yeah, I was born in a in a, a small Inuit community called Makovic, which is part of Nunatsiavut, which is the the Inuit homeland on the east coast of Canada. And Inuit people are are indigenous people in the north that cover a huge span of territory. So basically, from Labrador all the way across to Alaska, one big family of indigenous people with many different subgroups and some slight, you know, linguistic diversity, but yeah, the, a common culture for the most part. So help me understand what a childhood is like in Makovic. I mean, I think I saw something like 300 people, uh, obviously very remote on the coast, no roads in or out, I don't think. Um, is there a school? Well, it's, it's funny you mention that. So my, my parents were actually teachers. Um, they used to work with Outward Bound Canada. They were professional guides, um, ran the winter program and did climbing and, and guiding work in the summertime. Um, and they fell in love up there in, in northern Ontario, actually. And they're, they're from away. They're from, um, my mom's family's from Quebec and Toronto, and my dad's family's from northern Ontario. And they loved being in the bush. They took jobs in Makovic. Um, and so that's where I showed up on the scene. And I was the only sort of blonde-haired, um, blue-eyed kid in town. And so, yeah, so the school in the community, there's, there's basically a, a like K-12 school. It's a very small town, about 360 people. Um, the school is a community clinic. There's a couple community police officers. There's a youth, uh, youth hall, um, a shellfish, um, like a snow crab processing plant um, that employs people in the community. And then there's a mine nearby that people um, work sort of two weeks in, two weeks out on. So between that and, you know, people spending a lot of time on the land hunting and fishing and um, harvesting from the sea and from and from the bush. Um, that's sort of how people how people get by. Is there a grocery store? There's a grocery store. There's, yeah, there's actually two grocery stores in the community. Is there a bar? There's no bar. Um, and I should say too. I mean, one of the big issues that we face up in the north is is you know the logistics of transportation, and that that you know that covers medical issues, but also transporting food. So the cost of food up here is really really high. What's your most recent really long overland trip via Skidoo in the middle of winter? I mean, I assume that you know. Things don't always go as planned when you do that. My longest, or my most recent trip was was um, seventeen hundred kilometers by skidoo from from Goose Bay up to up to Nain and then into a place called Tequatacac, which is uh, this beautiful rock fjord um, that extends into the interior. And you know, seventeen hundred kilometers is a long way on skidoo, but that was there not a, not too many of those were travel days. We got pretty bogged down. Um, we had three blizzards. There were seven feet of snow. So in the springtime, which is you know often these beautiful long sunny days. Um, good ice conditions. You can also have these freak blizzards that come out of nowhere, and you, you've really got to be ready for all all four seasons in a day. As my my friends up here constantly remind me, you know, I wasn't I wasn't working when I did this trip. I, it was it was um, my holiday time, um, but there was a. Uh, you know, there was a baby born in Maine while while I was there, and uh, the clinic called me in, and um, yeah, I ran over and, and and caught a baby. You're never sort of really off work when you're a rural northern physician. Um, you know, people are still life goes on, right? And you've still got to be ready to to give people a helping hand when you can. Transportation, so obviously a vast area um, that you provide medical services for and, and that the overall province uh, occupies. Um, you know, us in the States, we hop in our cars, we drive around. Um, 
you guys don't really do that. Kind of rank for me the modes of transportation. And I mean, do people even use cars up there? I mean, are there roads? Yeah, so there's roads within each of the communities. And certainly within Goose Bay, people use cars to get around. Um, but for the most part, the biggest mode of transportation that we have here is planes. So we use, you know, twin otters, um, other small planes to get around. These are like small, um, you know, t- like tall passenger-ish uh, twin propeller planes. And that's the main you sort of all year round mode of transportation. Um, next up on the list, I'd say is, is probably Skidoo um, or snowmobile. Um, so definitely people, you know, covering traveling on the sea ice between communities and then through the bush back down to Goose Bay. And uh, and then in the summertime when the sea ice is out, then you know people use boats and ships. And there's Coast Guard icebreakers that come and help um, help try and you know expand the season for people. But you know even this even this winter there was a, a ship that got stuck in the ice just off, off the coast of Maine which is our most northern community in Labrador. And uh, even the Coast Guard icebreaker can get it out for a while. There's about eight feet of ice. And in terms of, in terms of you know, managing um, medical emergencies or, or uh, injuries on the coast, um, you know, we really depend on, on these planes and helicopters. We have two major search and rescue helicopters that we use here, a, a Griffin plane, or Griffin helicopter, and a Cormorant, which is a much larger, very powerful search and rescue uh, helicopter that we use to transport patients when there's, um, you know, when the weather's down or if they're deep in the bush. Um, so those are, those are the tricks that we have up our sleeve for, for getting people out of emergency situations and getting them to the, to the hospital. And I want to speak to some of those search and rescue operations because they sound uh, very challenging, very involved, and obviously very important in such a rural area. So we will do that with Andrew Bresnahan here on Wintry Mix in one moment. Stay with us. All right, I'm just going to buy some diapers real quick here before we get back to Andrew. These groups help to make the podcast possible. Let's start with the Peak Resorts family, including Mount Snow in Vermont, Atatash and Wildcat in New Hampshire, Hunter Mountain, New York, and Jack Frost Big Boulder in Pennsylvania. If you want to get out of Dodge this summer for a weekend, check out the options at peakresorts.com. Next, let's mention Ski Vermont. Their website, skivermont.com, is chock full of events, deals, and ideas for how to explore the Green Mountains in all seasons. And we'll cap it off with a thanks to Snowbird Utah. Located half an hour from the airport in the famed Little Cottonwood Canyon, complete your western itinerary with a visit to snowbird.com. Hey, they also get 500 inches of snow a year. Oh, yeah, that too. Now back to the show. Well, so that that brings me to, to the topic that I want to dig a little bit more into, uh, the Tornigat Mountains. Um, you are on the receiving end of probably almost all search and rescue missions that end with finding somebody that's in savable shape, I, I guess is, is, is a way to put it. Yeah. Um, and there's been, a, there's been a couple high-profile ones in the last few years. Uh, Matthew Dyer, a gentleman from Maine who had a... Uh, interaction, I'll say, with a polar bear. With search and rescue being the way that a lot of folks come to you, or at least via air travel, um, you know, what's it like to be uh, kind of on the receiving end of people in such remote areas uh, coming in uh, needing probably emergency care? Um, sometimes bad things happen. Every family on the coast has has some story of something going wrong and, and needing to look out for each other. Um, so people really step up. And I think in that sense, um, search and rescue is very much intrinsically a part of the culture here. Every community has a ground search and rescue unit. Um, and then obviously we've got the, the, um, the helicopter services for, for uh, the air search and rescue. In terms of um, uh, Mr. Dyer's case, I mean, he's, he's been quite, uh, quite vocal in terms of the storytelling, which is good. Um, and it makes me feel more comfortable sharing, uh, sharing his story because he's certainly spoken to it publicly. And if anyone is, is interested in digging into his story a little bit more, he did a, um, a long video interview with, with Vice News, who, um, that you can easily find on YouTube. 
Um, but this is a fellow who, who back in 2013 was attacked by a polar bear um, while in Torngat Mountains National Park. This group of, of, uh, of, of, of explorers and campers were um, sort of scoped out by this bear the night before the attack, and uh, they were camped a little bit too close to the water. And, um, and sadly, the bear attacked the camp and pulled um, this fellow out of his tent by, by his head and his, and his, and his torso. Um, and I was actually a, a medical student here uh, on call the night of the, the, night of the attack. Um, and I remember the, the sort of the coordination of the, the medical evacuation and search and rescue. And all this was complicated, as it so often is here, by the fact that the weather was down. There was a huge storm blowing on the coast. So we couldn't fly out a plane to, to go get him um, because of the storm. And search and rescue really struggled to get, to get access to him. Um, so actually, in this case, he ended up flying from deep in the Torngat Mountains across to a small, a small town, um, uh, George River in Quebec, um, and then over to Montreal. So he ended up getting diverted out away from our hospital to, to uh, another place to get him there quicker, which is, in the end, really lucky for him because he, as he describes in this vice documentary, um, had a pneumothorax, um, and the, you know, the bear had pierced his lung with its teeth. And uh, because of that, the, because of the weather, the plane had to fly really low below the clouds through the mountains. Um, and if it hadn't done that, there might have been all kinds of other problems that might have happened medically um, because of the pressure in the lung. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, an interesting story. And I think for us, with a big, it inspired a lot of reflection and a lot of learning between the the park and the health authority and and uh, the air force, who of course govern search and rescue, air search and rescue activities here in Canada. And so last fall, I was involved in a, a search and rescue exercise up in Twin Mountains National Park with Parks Canada and Joint Task Force Atlantic and uh, our search and rescue guys and uh, ground search and rescue from Maine, which is the closest community. And we did a, a whole bunch of um, uh, simulations. So you know, imagining a zodiac flip in the park and um, you know, a polar bear attack on the shore or, um, or what would happen if a plane had crashed and sort of tested all the, the search and rescue systems, but calling out the, um, calling out to the different, to the hospital and to the search and rescue coordinating center. Um, it was an incredible opportunity to get to, to get to be in the same room with all of these guys. I mean, we, we, we rarely, rarely get the chance to do that. Um, in fact, this was the first exercise of its kind in, in, uh, in Canadian history, as far as we know. Because it's, it's a new park. Uh, you have the kind of the challenge of access creates risk. Let me let me just read the um, kind of bio that's on the internet for the Torngat Mountains National Park to give people an idea. Let's give it a shot here. Sure. The journey requires careful planning, registration with park officials, and the right equipment. There are no roads, no campgrounds, and no signs telling you where to go or what to see. Parks Canada recommends that a visitor engage the services of a trained Inuit polar bear guard when hiking in the park. All visitors must register before entering Torngat Mountains National Park. The park's headquarters is located in the nearest town, Nain, which is 200 kilometers to the south. So that kind of gives folks an idea as to, you know, what the, this thing's kind of off on another planet um, as far as access to anything, I suppose, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, then, and that's 200, 200 kilometers from like the most southern point in the park. I mean, it extends a lot farther out and probably 200 kilometers as, as the crow flies. I mean, this is a a jagged landscape full of deep rock fjords and big mountains and changing ice conditions. I was watching the Vice um, video that you mentioned, and, you know, part of it was really showing about how, you know, these areas are kind of the canary in the coal mine of climate change. And when you have less sea ice, um, you end up having more polar bears on land looking for food because they're not getting seals. 
Um, so this area really seems like if you want to go up and you want to kind of have a run-in with a polar bear, there's probably no better place to do it. I, I watched the video and I felt like, huh, we're just going to put people and polar bears together and hope it works out. What else goes on up there? I think you, you manage it with a lot of respect for, for the power of the animal, that this is, this is their turf. It's always been their turf. As you described, there's, you know, there's, there's armed Inuit bear guide monitors um, who are there. They've got your back in terms of um, giving you the advice to have a safe experience with bears um, and also there to you know, be, a, be a bear deterrent if it comes down to that. I've had, I've had friends who've, who've had run-ins with bears in Labrador and, and in, in the high Arctic. Um, a couple of my friends, uh, Sarah McNair-Landry and Eric McNair-Landry, kite skied from Tukchiaktuk, which is way in the Western Arctic, right across the Northwest Passage to the south of Baffin, um, and had a, a polar bear attack mid-trip, where the bear attacked them in the middle of the night again and sort of started to, to sort of pound on them through the tent. They managed to thankfully scare it off. Um, Eric ended up trying to hit it in the face with a shovel, um, <laughs> which, you know, you carried it to make a camp with and to dig your toilet. And he said, you know, he probably should have brought out the toilet paper too because it was the scariest thing that had uh, ever happened to him. But they managed, yeah, they managed to scare it off with um, with a warning shot, didn't have to shoot the bear. Um, but yeah, they were very thankful, I think, to be carrying, um, carrying their shotgun with them on the trip. You know, whenever you're out on the land, you want to, you want to use traveling light, right? But um, I think it's it's very important up here to be to be mindful that you're in bear country. Are there any um, afflictions that are kind of still prevalent in Labrador that maybe in the states you know have been eradicated? I mean, what's what's your most common afflictions, and are there any kind of unusual ones due to the uh, you know climate and remoteness? Just in the last few years, there's been a, a number of tuberculosis outbreaks on the coast. So that's something that probably in the states you're you're less used to seeing. There were more used to seeing in low-income settings. And that every human being is susceptible to, right? Like there's there's one one third of the planet, some two billion people are infected with latent tuberculosis, but not everyone gets active TB, and not everyone gets, who gets exposed gets sick. So why is that? Why is it that we have tuberculosis as a problem here? It really has to do with with the conditions of everyday life. There's a lot of latent tuberculosis historically here, and crowded housing, poor access to food. Again, that like that high cost of food that we have here that leads to poor diets. A high prevalence of, of um, diabetes and, and uh, kidney disease, which are also associated with increased susceptibility to TB. When, when we see a problem in the clinic, it starts way before, obviously, we're, we're seeing it in, in that moment. So the, the community of Nain, uh, northernmost community, furthest distance from your hospital, somebody gets an ear infection or something like that. They're not flying all the way to you, are they? What do they do and how are you helping them? Yeah, so we, we've got a community clinic in Nain that's staffed by, by superstars, a bunch of really, really brilliant nurses. Um, who are very used to managing the sort of um, um, low acuity problems, and then also, of course, the higher acuity problems. So, you know, you come in with an ear infection, you, you can you can see the nurse there. If you come in with, you know, something that looks like a heart attack or a major trauma, um, then they'll call us at the hospital, and we always, of course, have our emerge emerge uh, emergency room staff twenty four seven. And we do teleconsults with the coast, so we'll talk on telephone. And then in Maine, we've also got a robot uh, named Rosie who, if you can sort of imagine, is about five feet tall um, and uh, has a screen for a face. Um, and that screen becomes, so if I'm staffing in the emerge, my face. And I'll use like a little joystick and Rosie will take a little stroll around the halls and go and see the patient. And I can zoom in on the patient's face or on the, you know, the, the diagnostic monitors that are in the room or on a particular part of the patient's body. Um, so just this week, I was, you know, cruising around the, the main clinic with Rosie um, as if, you know, it's, it, it, imagine R2-D2, but a little bit taller and with, with a screen for a face. Um, and that's, that's a pretty good impression of what, um, what this little robot's like. So pretty useful clinically and, and um, 
you know, just one other way that we function as a team between the hospital here and, and the, uh, the, uh, the community clinic. So you drive a little medical robot from 300-something kilometers away to uh, help people in Maine, if I understand correctly. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can hear everything when they're, when they're speaking to me. I can hear it through my headset. Um, and then uh, and they can hear my voice speaking through speaking through the robot. Is there a ski community in Labrador? I don't think there's any ski areas downhill style, obviously cross-country, backcountry. Where do you get your turns? Is there other people to do it with? How popular is just the pursuit of skiing? There's definitely a good little cohort of us um, who do cross-country and skate skiing and backcountry skiing. So there's a, there's a groomed skate ski trail here that's really quite beautiful. Um, and then, you know, there's a handful of us who to uh, get out there and tackle some of the bigger the bigger hills and bigger peaks up on the north coast. Well, don't get hurt when you're out there doing that because you might not be around to help yourself. Yeah, it, it'd be pretty embarrassing to have to call my search rescue buddies to be plucked off the mountain uh, after a skiing accident. So, like, you know, as with everything else, it's we're weighing risks and benefits and being really mindful. And you've, you've, you've got to, when, especially when you're in the backcountry. I am, I am amazed by your life experience. I just, I'm kind of in awe. I mean, I kind of feel pathetic. It's unreal. Are you going to be in the bush for life? I hope so. I, I love I love being in the north. I've got a strong commitment to being up here. I signed a return of service agreement in med school to work up in uh, up in Nunavut in Iqaluit um, once I'm done here. So I think I'll, my plan is sort of to bounce between Nunavut and Labrador for for the rest of my life. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I think I'll be I think I'll be in the north for life for sure. Let's finish up on a on a fast uh, on a fast note. I like to uh, kind of bang through this here and, and get get your quick takes. Are you ready, sir? I'm ready. I hope. He's ready. How often do you see an American? I'd say once every week or two. Sometimes they fall out of the sky. We get uh, medical evacuations from flights that drop into our emergency room from time to time. So that's that's where I see most of them, and and sometimes I get to see them well as well. Oh, they're on cross continental or, or cross Atlantic flights, and they have to land where you are because you're closest. Yeah, for some reason they love stopping in Goose Bay, so we we get a lot of that. <laughs> love as in have to. They have no choice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Is there fast food in Goose Bay? There's a, there's a Tim Hortons, which is uh, probably the most important from a Canadian perspective. Most definitely. What's the most popular brand of beer? Ooh, um, we don't have any local breweries here. I mean, I, I the most popular is probably something really bad. But I have uh, a couple a couple of bottles of Goose IPA in my fridge, which are absolutely delicious. Really, really good. Very hopsy. What sorts of food can be grown in the ground, if any? We do we do have greenhouses. People grow spinach. Um, but yeah, not not a ton. I'd say cabbage and spinach and some peppers. But not much. Not much. We, I mean, we harvest a lot of berries, right? We have blueberries, we have cod berries, which are delicious. Like sort of, they look like raspberries, but they're bright yellow. Um, so it's more about it's more about gathering and hunting here than growing. Um, although I, you know, I like to eat my spinach. How long is snow on the ground for? What's your what's your snowpack season? It's just leaving now, and and we're talking in in sort of mid May. The ice on the river just broke up about two days ago, um, and so I'd say it's a good, a good seven, eight months of the year. So it's like October to almost June. Yeah, October to October to May. Wow. Uh, sometimes September, and we get more snowfall here. I think I think than any other part of North America. I mean, when I was a kid, my house would be completely covered in snow. My dad used to have to dig down twenty eight steps to the front door. Yeah, I mean, in the spring storms, you know, we had seven feet uh, over the course of maybe 15 days. That gives you a sense of the, the scale. I mean, it's pretty, we got a lot of snow here. That's amazing. Are you forced to witness the American political circus? Does it end up in your face? Yeah, quite a, quite a lot, quite a lot. How so? Like television or some? 
We're, feel, we're feeling the burn. We're feeling, <laughs> we're feeling the burn. Of course you are. So are the folks in Newfoundland. How does it reach you? I mean, is, do you have cable television? I mean, what's the main media sources? Just the internet? Canada's done a pretty good job of carving out a space in, in our media landscape for, for Canadian stories and Canadian voices. But we, we definitely get inundated with, with news from the States. So lots of American television. But my, I remember my mom and dad my, telling me, I mean, they were, they were on the coast when TV first arrived here, which was in the 80s. And a lot of a lot of people saw shows like Dallas or like later on like nine hundred two one zero, and we're pretty sure that that's what life in the states was like. Um, so be careful what you put out there. <laughs> oh man, you grew up on nine hundred two one zero, didn't you? I, I definitely I had a bit of exposure. I was I was I was young enough that I used to sneak it. Like I I I was I was pretty shy about it. This prepubescent nine hundred two one zero watcher, but um, yeah, <laughs> that's that's true. Andrew, that was so inspiring. Um, I may never get up to Labrador, but I will be following you online. Good luck in Greenland and um, amazing work that you're doing, amazing life that you're living, um, even though you did grow up on 90210. Thanks so much. And, and keep up the storytelling. I, mean, I love Winter Mix and I uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Wintry Mix is produced with support from Vermont Public Radio and their members. We have production assistance from Liam Connors and Angela Evansy. Our growing music selections are by Adam Levy, and you can hear more of his stuff at our new website, wintrymixcast.com. Also new this season is free gear for listeners thanks to L.L. Bean. That's right, it's time for the hookup. To follow the show on social media to have a chance to win later in the season. That was episode 24 of Wintry Mix. Thanks a lot, Caroline. Thank you. We'll see you guys next time. Instagram living. Oh, yeah. Following folks in the Arctic because we're not going.